Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you are with us here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I hope you enjoyed our opening music called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Door. You can download that song on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we're about sound news, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with people in the trenches making a difference. And our goal is to raise all voices, big and small. And, um, and to our listeners, I have to thank you. Your likes, your clicks and shares have spread our brand and our content all around the world. Um, so you are changing lives and um, we, we really appreciate you being part of our, of our community. Today, we're going to be talking about Dementia Task Force and all different types of things that um, one particular community is taking um, to heart and is making a big difference for their residents. So I'm really, really interested to have that conversation with them. Some of our um, upcoming shows uh, on Thursday, we're going to be talking with Chris Brinkler, who is the CEO of Mind VR, and that's Mind M Y N D, and the virtual program that they have designed for people with dementia and seniors. It's pretty, pretty fascinating to see what they're doing. I also want to give a shout out to Artist Senior Living of Woodbury, Minnesota, and also Arthur's. Um, Memory Cafe. Both are doing memory cafes and you can find more information about those by just go, uh, contacting me um, through alzheimerspeaks.com. Coral Health is still being so kind in giving out their free app for Music First and Coral Faith. So just go to coral, C-O-R-O, health.com and you can download those free. And if you haven't heard, we launched Dementia Map, which I'm so excited about, which is a global resource directory that has over 150 categories. We have free plans uh, for those who have resources as well as paid ones if people want to get a little bit more exposure. And we don't ask for any contact information from the user. Uh, we don't want you to feel like you're being trapped or you're going to be hounded after the fact. So check out DementiaMap.com. So let's go ahead and get started with our conversation today. I am thrilled to have these ladies back again with us. I'm going to first introduce um, Linda Healy, and she is a certified uh, gerontological and palliative care nurse practitioner. And she has worked with MPTF, which is the Motion Picture and Television Fund. 
um, for the last 20 years, and she is the director of both the geriatric services and palliative care. So welcome, Linda. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's really good to have us to be able to talk with you again, Lori. Thanks for having us back. Yes, I'm excited to have you here. And next, I want to introduce Jessica Coy. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and she has worked with MPTF uh, communities and their clients and residents with dementia for the last 13 years. And she is the director of Campus and Community-Based Social Services. So welcome, Jessica. How are you doing? I'm terrific, Lori. Thanks. Well, I'm excited, um, again, to have you both back, but I'm going to ask um, each of you, because I always ask this question, just so our audience has a base, if you have been touched personally by dementia in your own family or circle of friends. So, Jessica, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so, within my family and circle of friends, I have not been touched by dementia, um, but I have obviously worked with people um, who have dementia through my profession, um, as well as uh, families in the community um, who are dealing with loved ones with dementia. Great. Thank you. And Linda, how about you? Um, within my circle of friends, yes, I've had uh, friends that have had parents that have experienced dementia and then, you know, help support my friends as they navigate um, their parents' lives. Um, within my own family, um, not at this time. Uh, I haven't, I haven't had anybody, um, but personally, you know, professionally, it's, it's, yes, absolutely. For the last 20 years here at Motion Picture, i um, been working quite a bit with dementia. Great. Now, I want to ask you about um, a task force, a dementia task force that you guys started. And I'm kind of fascinated at that because I don't hear too many communities that actually get involved. Usually the task force are, you know, within a dementia-friendly um, community at large, a city or a county, um, or even state force. So um, who would like to start out kind of telling us about why you started it and how you structured it? Linda, you should go. <laughs> yeah, so this, this actually started out um, in 2012, and it started out with the CMS mandate um, for nursing homes to reduce their antipsychotic prescribing by 30%. By within a certain period of time. And so this began as the antipsychotic task force, which was really pulling together, looking at if we were going to reduce antipsychotic use, um, that we really needed to have an alternative. And the alternative couldn't just be hopping to another medication. We really realized that, you know, we've got to come get more creative about how we're addressing the distress and the um, uh, behaviors of unrest that can occur in somebody with dementia. And so um, it was bringing together nursing and social services and pharmacy along with the prescribers um, to be able to sit at a table and talk about, okay, what are we going to do? How do we change the culture of how we give care? It wasn't, it was about the individual resident, but it was also the broader picture of how do we, you know, how do we actually just change what our MO is in, in taking care of things? And so that's where it actually began. Um, and then as time went by and we did make the reductions that we wanted to and made a shift away from pharmaceutical interventions um, 
more, you know, as being a first line choice. They really became the last straw. Um, we realized that antipsychotic task force really wasn't, you know, meeting the needs. And it was truly, it was a dementia task force. It was trying to make sure that um, our care of our residents, the people that, that you know, are, are entrusted to us, gave them the best quality of life and the richest quality of life that we could. And so um, members from activities, met, um, more members from the frontline nursing staff were added. The um, uh, employee education um, nurse was added to the task force because we were really trying to look at that broader picture of across the campus, how do we make our community um, as dementia friendly as possible and, and be able to, again, make sure that people are, embraced and supported at whatever level they are in their cognition. Well, that's nice. Jessica, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, and we'll probably get into this more, but, you know, the dementia task force, um, you know, is, is Linda's baby. I think, you know, she, she was the one that really saw, um, you know, the need for something like this and out of it grew um, many creative ideas. And we, you know, we can talk about that in a little while, but, because we had such an interdisciplinary team um, that came to the table, each piece of that team then came up um, with ideas that could, um, you know, target and work with our residents who have dementia in such specialized ways. And so um, the Dementia Task Force grew into a very, I think, unique um, uh, programming, for lack of a better word. Well, you know, what I like about it is you, you took something that was a mandate, you know, from CMS and you, you did more than what they asked. I mean, you looked deeper, you didn't just like, okay, you know, we pulled this together. We've, we've looked at the anti-psychotic, boom, we're done. You really looked deeper into the individuals and said, Hey, you know, this can transcend everything that we're doing and how we're doing it. And, and, you know, just really that whole culture change of, of how you interact and how you inter and engage. And, um, and I think that that's so important. I would love to see more, com more communities take that stance. You know, a lot of communities say that they specialize in dementia care, but they don't always go into the whys and the hows of what they do. Um, and they might be doing it, but they don't always share it with the public or with families, which I think is really critical, um, you know, from, you know, picking out your, your dishes, you know, that is, that's being served with food or the type of chairs and furniture that you use, you know, all of those things can come into play. And then you add in, you know, the activities um, in the actual engagement pieces. Those are all really, really important things for families to understand that, it doesn't just look pretty, you know, it looks this way for a reason. We do this for a reason. And I think sometimes that educational piece is, is um, undervalued um, and it's done, but it's not always communicated as to why. And it, it can have a huge impact when others are, are trying to do the same thing, but if they don't know the whys behind it, um, mm -hmm. you know, it can get pushed to the side you know, say, well, you know, try something else. So kudos mm -hmm. to you guys. You have also been um, really doing a lot of dementia training programs for staff and for volunteers. So I'd love to hear what types of programs you're, you do have. And, um, and probably I'm, I'm guessing you've had to adjust with COVID <laughs> on how do you make all of that happen? Um, so 
Um, who would like to take that question? I can start and then Linda, if you wanna chime in. Okay. Um, so again, really, I think out of this dementia task force, we saw that there was um, you know, the need for education. There can be kind of this body of folks that are really interested in dementia and how do we meet the needs of our residents who have dementia, but if we don't sort of permeate through the rest of staff and families and volunteers, then um, you know, it kind of only stays within a small group of people. So together, Linda and I with the education department, um, another nurse practitioner that works with us, Darlene Salas, um, the head of uh, volunteers, um, we got together and um, we've put on a number of different trainings across campus, um, starting with the basics of what is dementia, um, how do you work um, with residents who exhibit behaviors due to dementia. Um, we had a, a training where we actually got a virtual reality, um, I don't even know what you call it, but a, a virtual reality program that um, allowed the person to um, experience what it was like um, during the different phases of dementia. So mild, moderate, and then severe. And so we would have the individual wear the virtual reality and then we would have kind of a, a discussion afterwards. Um, we've also done training where we watch uh, different videos um, about people who have experienced dementia or families who's, who've experienced dementia and have discussions around that. And it's been across campus. So not just nursing staff, but dietary staff, housekeeping staff, um, volunteers who come in and work with our residents. And we've done it for, gosh, a couple of years now, I would say, Linda, I don't even know offhand. We have, we've also included all managers from all departments, even, you know, going into the finance part of the department, the finance department and the marketing department, because we we realized that anybody coming to campus to work here in some way encounters dementia or their work supports the care of people with dementia. And so um, we wanted to make sure even if they were one step removed, that they had some understanding of what the people that were, that are in our care, you know, what they're experiencing and what they need. Well, you know, I, I love that you said that because so many times people go, well, you know, janitor doesn't work with them. Housekeeping doesn't work with them. They're in contact with, with people with dementia a ton and have conversations and assist. And so sometimes just because a, a job title, you think this is what their tasks are. They're there to support the whole community. Right. And, you know, if they're walking down the hall, this is going to happen. And so that's a really smart, um, healthy approach to get everybody to understand why they're there, you know, mm -hmm. in the first place. Mm -hmm. And, and I also think that everything that is taught through dementia can be applied in other areas of life. Mm -hmm. and, and kind of open your eyes and well, maybe I should try this approach with my teenager, <laughs> whatever it might be, or my toddler, my spouse, um, because it really is about um, amplifying good communication skills, um, being more present, um, picking up on things that sometimes we would just kind of blow off as non-important. And, and I also think it's good for those staff to feel part of the team that they can make a difference as well. Um, I know with some companies I've worked with, they actually have carved out time. Like 
even if it's 15 minutes a week where, the, where everybody has to do a one-on-one <clears throat> with a resident at, at all levels, just to make sure that they're in sync with why they're there and who they serve and um you know just added that that comfort level that that humanness how have you had to adjust with covid with training at this point well the the classroom training clearly we can't bring people together in a class so there is there we have been able to incorporate some virtual experiences for people Um, but we we've been able to continue with the Um, huddles that we do on a weekly basis and that started again from the dementia task force was coming together with the staff that the the frontline staff that was caring for our residents um, and each week and just saying okay who are you know which resident is you know making you concerned this week that you're concerned for them or you're noticing that there may be you're having more difficulties in their care because they're not responding the way they used to and that kind of thing. And then letting the staff brainstorm, we, Jessica and I would be there to help facilitate that, uh, but brainstorm on what, what else could they try? What approach are they trying that's not working? And what other approaches might they try? What other ways can, how can we adjust their care plan to meet that resident's need? And we've been able to continue doing that with staff is to, is to be able to kind of do these these very small groups spaced apart, everybody wearing their PPE, but going through and just talking about, you know, which residents, um, which residents need to be discussed that week. And it was also a way of trying to team build for the staff themselves. Like you have resources in the people right around you. You may be having troubles with, with Betty, but maybe, you know, your partner over here, has figured out a way that works for Betty and it's just getting them to talk to each other and brainstorm and realize that collectively they've got a lot of knowledge, you know, amongst them. Again, I love that approach. I love even just calling it a huddle versus a staff meeting because it makes it feel part of a team and not, not so cold, but really again, kind of humanizes it. And I think it is really important for staff to understand how much they know. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that, that, that they can really help somebody else out in a situation. And I think, you know, um, kind of lighting that fire to, to that spark of creativity is, to me, makes the difference of will a team work um, together and, um, or not. You know, a lot, of, a lot of communities out there, you know, they don't allow staff to the freedom to try new things. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're going to do it. They either fit the criteria or they don't. And then poof, they're out. But when you allow that creativity, um, I think employees feel more purposeful. I think they feel more appreciated. You know, it allows them to get kudos when something works. And it also allows them when something fails to be supported by the team, you know, Hey, we tried, let's try something else. You know, it's, it's any, any great investor or entrepreneur out there will say they've failed way more than they've, <laughs> than they've made the right choices mm-hmm. the first time. And so it's just a matter of, of lifting one another because we've all been in that place where, you know, we've done something and it hasn't worked out the way we've wanted it to. And then other times it has, and we know how both of those feel, but mm-hmm. we need to get to that point of how do we make it work? And, you know, the more times we fail, the closer we get to, 
to that point. So I think that that's a really healthy, healthy environment that you have there. Um, Jessica, anything that you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, I think another thing that we've tried to do, um, you know, during the pandemic, especially with our volunteers, is um, we do have family visits that take place um, where our volunteers actually come and oversee the visits. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've um, done some Zooms with the volunteers as a group, just sort of talking with them about different scenarios that have come up during those family visits. And in particular, it has been you know, some of our residents who have dementia, um, because it's obviously a confusing time for all of us, and then add, you know, um, uh, kind of having to go out of their environment. We have the visits outside of their unit of where they live. Um, And so there have been some instances of, you know, people getting up and wanting to wander away. So I, you know, I've I've, um, availed myself to the volunteers just to talk and, and provide support to them. And that's been one way over Zoom that we've done that. Um, and then the social workers continue to have their caregiver groups um, for uh, our family members virtually. So those are happening um, over Zoom. And in our, in our community outside of our, um, our dementia area over in our RCFE, education continues um, again virtually. So sending links to people to watch training and then gathering them in small groups to talk about those trainings. So Um, You know, education, we see it as super important and critical. I think it's part of how we get staff to buy in um, and feel included and important. Um, And so we've tried as best we can to have the education continue. Wonderful. Not perfect, but. (laughs) Well, you know, life's not perfect. (laughs) And that's, you know, I think one thing that dementia teaches us if we allow it to that life wasn't perfect before, and it's not going to be with dementia. So, you know, stop having these high expectations, you know, um, and learn to kind of go with the flow a little bit, a little bit more. Um, Well, that is, that's great news. You know, one of the things, and I don't know if you guys have um, memory cafes or not, which are, you know, support groups for people with dementia, typically in early to mid stages and their care partners. Um, but I was talking with Cindy Lazinski, who has a dementia-friendly community in uh, Colorado, and she shared with me one of their um, Zoom memory cafes that they're doing. But what they're doing is a little bit different because a lot of communities might have a support group for their residents, but it's just the residents alone, and they've, they've invited families in. And so not just necessarily a spouse, but their children and grandchildren. And I got to see this one clip where, you know, they were doing like a music activity during this, during this meeting. And, you know, the husband just got teary eyed with a huge smile on his face, seeing his wife engage. Same with the daughter and the granddaughters. I mean, it was just like, you know, being able to share those things through zoom is, is just unbelievable. Um, and such a great, great value to, to families themselves. I'd like to talk about some of the activities that you're doing to keep your residents busy and engaged and kind of normalize things, especially during COVID. <laughs> because, um, you know, here in some of our um, communities <clears throat> in memory care, they handle it all different in Minnesota. Some of them have locked everything down and people are really stuck in their room. They're not to wander in the hall. They've pulled 
furniture out of lounges and the whole nine yards. And then others are saying, you know, we're, you know, we're set up for smaller communities and we're going to let people still roam and, <clears throat> and partake because people with dementia don't understand a lockdown, you know, or being quarantined, all of those types of things and using safety precautions to still allow them to engage. So what types of things have you been doing? And if you can give us some maybe examples, um, and I'll go to Jessica first on this one, of types of activities that you use for engagement. Yeah, so I mean, I think we've been trying to sort of find the happy medium, right? So um, recognizing that people who have dementia aren't going to understand <clears throat> kind of what's going on and trying to sort of keep some normalcy um, to their lives as best we can, but as safely as we can. Um, and so I know our recreation department has been doing a lot of kind of individualized um, activities, very small group activities. So for instance, um, I was up there, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, and it, I don't know if it was like 50s day or something, and, and uh, the staff were dressed up um, in, in um, you know, different costumes, and they had a cart um, going around where it was playing music, staff were dancing, and then they kind of congregated safely with some residents, very spaced out and had kind of a small dance party, and, um, you know, were handing out um, refreshments, um, and so that was kind of fun to watch. Um, we have um, a internal television station here on campus um, where residents can tune into um, to watch different programming throughout the day. So there's like, um, you know, stories that take place or game shows that take place. Um, and so that's been a way to engage some of our residents who are able to kind of sit and watch those shows. And those can be interactive um, as well. Linda, I don't know. We've been doing FaceTime. Those are, that's another thing that we try to do with our residents is engaging them over FaceTime or Zoom with their families who obviously aren't here um, and allowing them to, to visit with them um, virtually. Okay. I think we've also just avoided the everybody has to stay in their room philosophy does not work well for somebody with dementia. And so our, our setting that are more impaired residents, the people who require a secured setting, which is, is Harry's Haven, um, that's, that's was designed to be a very interactive environment in and of itself without it needing to have a staff person facilitate something. So there's a workshop where there's um, figure, wood figures to paint and PVC pipes to put together and that kind of thing. There's the laundry room where there's socks, little children's socks to be sorted and towels to be folded and whatever else it just sits there and, and if somebody can engage with that. Um, there's the grocery store, um, which is just has basically very, as, as non-perishable as possible, you know, boxes of food and things like that, that somebody, if they feel like they want to pick something out for their meat, their dinner, they can. And then there's the office that has a typewriter and um, filing and things. And so all of that environment we've kept accessible. We try to keep an eye on as best as possible, not have two residents side by side, but frankly, if that where the residents are getting tested regularly, we're monitoring for symptoms and you can't totally take away people's ability to have social engagement. So within reason, we, you know, we try to keep people a little bit spaced apart, but it's not going to be a, no, you can't do that. You need to back away type thing. We, we don't, we try not to make it a, um, intrusive 
on, on how they're trying to live their lives. Well, and that's nice. I, I know, you know, I talked with a lot of people um, basically all around the world because I was doing some COVID specials when this first started and everyone said, oh, everyone's adapting really well. And they were all kind of shocked. And then it hit about six weeks to two months. And then everybody saw a change. And it's like, did that change really just take place then? Or was everyone else so busy learning about the PPE and all the routine yeah. changes, you know, with that? I mean, it's really kind of hard to hard to say, but then, you know, everybody was talking about the depression, the isolation, the loneliness, and the, you know, they were seeing an increase of, of people passing and, yes. um, you know, with or without the disease itself. And so, you know, that whole right to, you know, socialize has been really, really important and, you know, gets down to that whole quality of life issue. And, uh, you know, we're seeing that with people, you know, inside a community and outside a community, you know, just in terms of, of what we're dealing with. I'd like to think those that um, aren't living, you know, in a, in a dementia community have a little more wherewithal to stay connected and in other um, fashions, but still be, still be safe. But that's not always the, the way of the world. Um, I know it's been really difficult on families in terms oh, of, gosh, yeah. yeah in terms of, um, you know, the, uh, the fear of the next lockdown, or, you know, I was able to visit now, now I can't again. And here in Minnesota, you guys at least have nice weather here in Minnesota, you know, it's like 20 below today. So yeah. or not, not below 20, uh, 20 to 30 uh, degrees out with, uh, with a nice little clip of a windshield. So, you know, they, they really can't do the outside visits so much anymore. And people are really trying to figure out how do we, how do we keep people engaged? How do we keep them safe with all that? Now, you guys um, also, I think, have done some things with like a walking groups and um, which I think is a really nice, I, I mean, everybody needs to move. I should sign up for one of those because I, my butt sits in front of the computer way too much these days. Um, but I think that that's just a, a really healthy means and it doesn't have, you know, again, it's not costing you money to do an activity like that. Um, what kind of response have you seen from, from your residents with that? Well, the walking group um, was, well, is, and we haven't, we haven't been doing it as much um, during COVID. Um, some of our residents who live in our assisted living um, do walk. We have a beautiful campus with acres um, that, we're, that we're on. So we're pretty lucky in that way. Um, but there was an there was a great response to our walking group. Um, we would have between six and ten of our residents together who would walk throughout campus, um, and then we would stop at various locations and do kind of some light exercises, um, sometimes dancing, sometimes kind of mimicking, um, you know, marching or or other sort of fun activities. We bring a ball sometimes and and throw that a, a, a nice big kind of beach ball. Um, and play that and so our walking group was actually quite a success and hopefully it'll continue once this kind of surge and rise of the virus is over um, our our unit called which is called harry's haven our dementia unit is designed to sort of promote walking uh, linda had mentioned what we call the neighborhoods with the various activity stations but the way that it's set up, the environment is it really allows for kind of almost like a nice walking path that goes around in a circle. Um, 
And so, you know, the residents can kind of stop at the different activity centers. And so that's um, a really nice feature of Harry's Haven Archimedes Unit. And so um, that's kind of been what's going on with our walking that's nice. Well, and you guys had the fires to battle too with oh, all yeah. well, you couldn't go outside for those. I mean, it's like yeah. you guys have been hit with with everything this year. What about um Linda, can you tell me about the mechanical cats that you have? Oh, yeah, those those were the the Hasbro mechanical cats. They're called companion cats. Mm-hmm. And I mean these things are are they're they're pretty cool. They're the cat has sensors on it. And so it's a stuffed cat, maybe about the two feet long um and it's it's but with the sensors and it's got a motor inside runs on batteries that it can detect so if the end of if the person holding the cat strokes the side of the cat's face the cat moves its head into the hand like it's pushing oh, it wow. to get more attention um if you pet the back a certain way the cat turns so that its belly is exposed because it wants its tummy rub um if you it'll sit by itself and it'll raise its paw to its mouth like it's cleaning itself it will um eventually it'll start purring if you pet it a certain way and you can not only hear the purr you can feel the vibration um and it, it does some other things but it's it's something that we found some of our residents just that it it gave a sense of purpose. It wasn't like, here's a stuffed toy. This was their, the creature they were taking care of. And so they made sure their cat was tucked in with them at bed at night. And then at mealtime, they made sure their cat got some of the meal. So we learned how to clean mechanical cats. (laughs) (laughs) Their little mouths and faces got, got, you know, covered with dinner. Um, But it was still, it was a sense of they were taking care of somebody and they are. And so it's something that we found, was soothing it again reduced anxiety it reduced outbursts of being um distressed it was just that this the people could kind of just they were with their their pet and then people would come by and we found that staff we all started talking to the cats like the cat was you know oh you know how are you today bootsy and it just sort of became these cats are they're part of the fabric of the unit. So we, we still, we, we got mechanical dogs too, but I think because the dogs were a little bit more limited in their movement, it was less realistic. Not very many puppies just sit, you know, yeah. so cats did better because it could really a cat curled up on your lap as a kind of a natural thing. Oh, um, nice. Well, yeah. you know, you think of uh, how many people who have real pets out there and they, they do, they become part of your family. It's about unconditional love. It's, it is soothing, you know, and it is, uh, it is loving. Um, so that's, that's neat that they made it that realistic. How about, um, I, I think you guys said you did some aromatherapy groups as well. Um, Jessica, do you want to take that one? And um, I'll start. This is kind of Linda's baby too, but um, <laughs> so yeah, we, again, sort of we do it individual and then we were doing it in groups. Obviously we're not doing it in groups as much these days. Um, but in the, in the group idea, we would gather people. Um, we'd have diffusers going where some sort of scent um, was in the diffuser. And then um, one of our recreation staff might go around and, um, you know, put a scent on um, maybe a cotton ball or, or on someone's hand and allow them to sniff it. So if it's lavender, the idea there is that it's soothing um, and then do some kind of gentle um, hand massage with um, some lavender lotion. 
And then um, there's been certain residents, um, you know, who, who Linda and others have identified that really respond to the aromatherapy. So um, they might have um, a, a, a aromatherapy stick um, that's put up like in the doorway of their, their room um, that um, uh, emits a scent of, you know, again, let's say it's lavender. Um, and then perhaps a diffuser, if that's something um, that we think would work in a residence room. But Linda, you can add to what I've... Well, we, we experimented with a lot of different things with aromatherapy. So I think we've hit upon a combination of different delivery methods and um, um, when it would be appropriate and for which individuals that I think we're, we're, we're fine-tuning um, its success. It also... It, uh, is became a real integral part of a program that we brought onto campus called Urban Zen. And that was a program that actually was developed for use in the hospital type setting, which incorporates specially trained, they're called Urban Zen Integrative Therapists, um, but they are specially trained and they're able to deliver aromatherapy, guided breathing, um, intentional movement that kind of focuses a person on in the moment um, and Reiki and things like that to, and it was brought into hospitals to help like in the pre-op setting. If somebody that to get somebody kind of in a good frame of mind in a calm state before going into surgery, and they found that people did much better post-op. So um, that was just kind of its original intention. Um, we brought it in and were able to use it with our residents with dementia and found that, and this was kind of unchartered territory because it's not really how Urban Zen was initially intended, but the responses that we saw to it um, were just amazing. Uh, we, uh, we have a therapist that we work with and that she, you know, is able to find, you know, with each individual resident, it's always a one-to-one, one-on-one experience and find out which aromatherapy, which, which um, uh, essential oil that person is responding to at that time. And then if they're able to, she can take them through some very simple movements of just, you know, open and close your hands in time with your breathing and kind of help them engage with her. They mirror her movements. Um, there, what I found most fascinating, though, was the residents that are so impaired in their dementia, so progressed in their in their disease state, that they are they're not able to follow the instructions to move or to breathe or anything else. And yet, her presence with them, the aromatherapy, the gentle reiki on just like a knee, um, I saw people that had not made eye contact for months turn their head and look at her and actually connect. And it was such an amazing thing. It was like watching, you know, awakening. Um, and that just that one-on-one attention and, and connecting with them in a way that wasn't just verbal or whatever. It was the using the senses that they had that they could still engage with. And so um, we're really excited to continue exploring that as, an, you know, as, as a means of therapy and, and, and quality of life activity for our residents. Well, and I think with that, you know, the, your urban Zen person is so present, you know, and they're not coming in with all this baggage stuff, which a lot of us do, you know, maybe we had a bad day at home on our way, our drive to work or something, and we carry that with us. And, you know, that can get mirrored back our frustration or our sadness or our happiness, whatever it is. But I don't think people really understand that importance of, of the, the mirroring concept that they will reflect back what we are, 
you know, and, and how we're acting and they will pick up if we're disconnected, if we've got the stepford wife smile on and yet we're really anxious on the inside, they're still picking up on all of that stuff. And I mm-hmm. found that totally, totally amazing as well. And I think the, the ability to, to learn um, and to look at things differently. I mean, we, we all breathe every day, all day long, but we don't really pay attention to how we breathe or how our breathing changes when our moods change and how deep breathing can make a difference. And, you know, just that, that calmness, I, I have to laugh this is a little off topic, but I took my granddaughters for a walk this weekend and one of them was riding her scooter. The other one was walking because her bike was put away for, for winter and uh, we didn't have any snow. So we went out and the five-year-old is doing her scooter and she would go so far and then she would stop. And, you know, she learned this at school, she would stop and she would sit and she would cross her legs and she would put her, her fingers in the O and she would go, um, (laughs) just for a few seconds. And then she'd pop up, she'd get back on her scooter again. And, you know, a little while later she's, and it was just like, I don't know what called her to do that. Um, but I thought it was beautiful that she even remembered that she was utilizing it. I don't quite understand why, but she was, she was proud and she was comfortable and she was happy. And, and I think, you know, when we look at our residents, you know, again, are they safe? Are they pain-free? Are they happy? Are they comfortable? I mean, those are really the key things that we have to, we have to focus on. And some of the simplest things we haven't paid attention to are the most powerful tools that we can have. So I love the the aromatherapy, using that to, you know, if it's wake somebody up or calm them down, or, you know, even for um, hunger, all of those things that can be used. Same with music therapy. Um, You know, they can pick up the beat to get somebody more lively. They can slow it down to calm them down. And, you know, we're just used to listening to the music, but not understanding necessarily what it's doing you know, on an internal basis to our, to our mind and to our, our body as a whole. So kudos to you guys. Now you're also doing something called time slips. And I'd, I'd love for one of you to explain that a little bit more of what is time slips and how are you using that with your residents? Sure. I can, um, I can talk about time slips. Um, so Time Slips is a program that actually was started by a woman um, named Anne Bastein. She's actually a MacArthur Fellow. And it's a program designed for people who have dementia um, and they become the storyteller. And so what we do is we pick a picture and it can be any picture. And then the group facilitator, and typically we have a group of about 10 to 12 residents. Um, each of them gets a, a copy of the picture and the facilitator begins to ask questions. Um, and there's no wrong answer and everybody's answer gets incorporated into the story. Um, so it might be a picture of a woman sitting on a park bench holding a guitar and I might ask the question, where is she? And so various residents across the room might shout out different places that they remember or it's completely silent and I might walk over to a resident and show them the picture again and say, where do you think this, this person is? Um, and so from there, through the questions, we develop a story. Um, and you engage every single person in the room. 
Um, and sometimes if I might say, um, what do we think the weather is in this picture? And someone might say windy. I'll say, okay, can we act out what we might feel like if it's windy? And so it engages everybody, not just verbally, um, but physically. And uh, we've come up with some pretty amazing stories. Um, <laughs> my goal at some point is to create a book of the stories um, that we can you know, give not only to um, our residents, but their families. Uh, because really, um, much like Linda was explaining with the Urban Zen, you have some people who are really not verbal any longer and come to this group and participate. Um, it might be a one-word answer, but they participate and they become an author of this story. That really becomes a quite beautiful story. Some are very funny, um, but they're very creative. And it's been, a, it's been a great activity. It lasts about 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And then at the end together, we come up with a title. Sometimes we come up with three titles. And so the story has three titles and sometimes we just come up with one title. Well, that's neat. And I like the inclusion. I've, I've seen something similar to that with poetry. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's just fascinating how, how, you know, people, I mean, they love this, they love being part of creating mm -hmm. this, and then to hear the story at the end, I, I have seen um, some where they've um, made books, and then they have given those books even as gifts to family. Yeah. Um, because it's just a nice piece of, of letting families know, again, everything doesn't have to be real or make sense to be fun and engaging, you know, and to show, oh, this is mom's line, or this is, you know, it, that stuff's important to people, you know, it's a, it's a legacy piece um, that I think is really, really nice for them to be able to have if it's a, even if it's a PDF that goes out to, to families, um, and is able to, you know, it, depending on HIPAA, and if everyone approves, but to even just have their pictures taken, um, with that group of this is what they created is is a pretty cool thing or um, I've seen others where they've done it as artwork so they'll have a picture of the picture they'll have a picture of the group and then they'll have printed out what it is in a frame and you know that's some of the artwork throughout the community um, and again it's just a it's a nice piece that shows you know these this we're not doing this just to keep bus people busy right but you know there's really an outcome there's a there's a connectiveness with that and i and i think that that is something we can't teach people enough of yeah. that, that this really matters um you know to people so neat um linda did you want to add anything on the time slips no that was really jessica's um uh project that she took on and, and really implemented. But I just, just to echo what you're saying, I think it goes back to everything is about, you know, not only caring for people, but making sure that they're, they, they do feel they have purpose and that they do have creative outlet and they do have the ability to have human connections. And, you know, that goes, sure, making sure that weight and vital signs and everything else is, are good is, is, is a part of it. But these are the things that really feed the soul. And that's, I think, really give people a quality of life. Yep. Yeah. And I, we don't have those conversations about what brings quality of life. What, what is that? I don't know if you've done that ever with, with uh, even the, the caregiver groups or with people with early onset dementia, but their conversations are fascinating mm -hmm. and they get very specific of what's important to them. 
And, um, and I think it helps others go, oh, I didn't think that mattered, you know, because it doesn't matter to me doesn't mean it doesn't matter to you. And so just getting to that, that root of engagement of, of even being kind enough to ask, how do I want to be cared for is really, really very, very important. And to have a team look at that and take that seriously um, is really um, something to, to see um, in action for sure. Um, well, I can't thank you guys enough for the time and the ideas that you've given all of us in terms of how to care better. Again, I love the idea of the Dementia Task Force, how it is so inclusive for all levels of your employees and volunteers and um, family members and so forth to really get into what is, what is going to be good for this person, you know. Um, and what is going to be good for our culture? What's going to cause us to care better and deeply and feel purposeful doing it? Um, so it's not just a task. I think that can get dis disheartening sometimes when you have a job that doesn't make you feel you're just doing it to get paid. But when you have that benefit of, of seeing what you've done and how that has brought joy to somebody, I mean, you, that's priceless. That's just one of those things that, that stays with people forever, you know, in terms of making a difference. So people can go ahead and um, reach out to uh, Linda or Jessica. And what, what contact information would you like to give people, Linda, for yourself? Uh, my email address, mm -hmm. which is Linda Healy, H-E-A-L-Y, at mptf.com. Okay, great. And Jessica Coy, who is not spelt like Coy at all. Um, why don't you go ahead and give out your email address as well? Sure, it's Jessica, J-E-S-S-I-C-A dot Coy, C-A-U-G-H-E-Y at M-P-T-F dot com. Wonderful. And people can just go to the website, which would be mtpf.com um, to learn more about your organization. Mm -hmm. And um, in, if I'm not mistaken, you guys are um, a nonprofit as well and can take donations if people want to contribute. Is that correct? We are yes. a nonprofit, yes. Okay. So yeah, nonprofits are getting hit hard with this COVID. So if anyone's got a little extra jingle and wants to put it to good use, you know, go to mptf.com and uh, push that donate button. Thank you guys so much for um, sharing during the holidays. I think you've given people a lot of great ideas on how to care better. So thank you so much. Thanks, thank Lori. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.